For last month on Sundays, we've been talking about Abraham. And we'll be talking about him for a while yet. There's quite a few stories in the Bible about Abraham. So just to start with a few reviews, one of the first things we've been emphasizing is how the story of Abraham has a lot of ups and downs in it. And sometimes you'd expect, oh, we've got this, this hero in the Bible, right? Everything's going to go well. He's going to do all the right things. And it's not the way it works. And so the story of Abraham is God's grace and Abraham's sin and then Abraham's faith and then up and down. And here we go. Can you help me walk through these boxes? I kind of put them a little bit in order of how we hear the story of Abraham in the Bible. So we started in Genesis chapter 12, and it was really good right at the start. What happens? The first thing that happens to Abraham, we were introduced to him. He had no children. That's right. That's not a real good thing, is it? But you're absolutely right. Maybe you meant that as a good thing. Maybe, maybe you meant that as a really good thing. I'm not sure. So Abraham didn't have any children. And what's the good thing that God does? God chooses him. That's where we start, out of the blue. There's no reason for it. Out of the blue, God chooses Abraham. And he says, go to Canaan, and I'm going to make you a great nation. We start off up here. This is good. God chooses Abraham. Almost immediately, like the next story, Abraham messes up. What's the first thing that he does that's wrong? He didn't go to where God told him to go. So that's an interesting point. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. So people do do kind of debate, did did Abraham do what God called him to do perfectly right away? And the reason people ask that is because he started in Ur. God told him to go to Canaan, which is over here. But instead of going from Ur to Canaan, where did he go? Haran. To Haran, which is up here, and he kind of stopped there. So there, you're right, there is some debate about exactly when did God call Abraham, and did Abraham go all the way the way he was supposed to the first time? So I'm glad that you brought that up. That wasn't what I was thinking of, but that's a fair point to make. So there's a question, did, did Abraham, did he go the full way the way God wanted to? Maybe he kind of went halfway, and then he needed to go the rest of the way. But let's say he gets there, so he's in Canaan, and he sets up an altar, he worships God, it's all good, he has this good start, and then he has to go somewhere else, and something bad happens. So he ends up having to go to Egypt, because there's a famine, there's nothing wrong with trying to go to a place with food, but he gets to Egypt... And he says, you know, Sarah, you're my wife, but you're so beautiful. Someone might take you from me and mistreat me. And so, let's just say you're my sister. Let's just say you're my sister. And so it seems like he's trusting God's promise. And then all of a sudden, he's, he's tested. And he comes up with this bad plan. And, and so Abraham says, <laughs> and if you or I were God, maybe we'd say, I'll go to somebody else. Right, let's start over. But that's not what God does. Okay, after that, we hear some more good things. What were some of the other high points after they get back from Egypt? He had all sorts of possessions. So God richly blessed them. 
And remember, that led to needing to split from his nephew Lot, because they had too much stuff together. And Abraham graciously lets his Lot choose where he wants to live, and Abraham takes what's left over, and he knows God's going to bless us. And after that, you have the big battle. Ever hearing about the big battle? Abraham's nephew Lot is taken captive, and Abraham actually raises an army just within his own household, and he becomes an army commander, and he defeats four powerful kings who had come from the other side of the world, and he drives them all away. All right, so God comes and promises Abraham things. Abraham sins, calling his wife his sister. God blesses him anyways. God lets him have this big victory in battle. There's one more really high thing. This box is even a little higher than that one. Can you see that? Just how, how I put so much effort into this? So, this? This really high box is meant to be Genesis chapter 15. So after he gets all these possessions with the victory, I know I could put more boxes on here. Maybe have all the boxes filled in already. Remember what happens in Genesis chapter 15 that's really good? That's at the end of chapter 14, because Melchizedek and Abraham gives him 10% of the spoils. God comes to him again in Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham says, oh God, I'm just going to have to have one of my servants be my heir. And what does God say? No, he's going to be from your own body. And then God makes this covenant with Abraham. He makes this promise. Right? I'm going to do this for you. Right? like a high point. But then last week, all of a sudden, we go way down again. What happened last week? It was taking too long. So last week we read this unfortunate story where God's promise to Abraham is taking too long. And so Sarah says to Abraham, why don't you just sleep with my maidservant? And that way you can get a son. And so they do. And it ends up being a mess. And Hagar sleeps with Abraham. She gets pregnant. Sarah gets jealous. They drive Hagar away. God appears to her. She goes back. And there's this whole conflict in the family because Abraham and Sarah took things into their own hands and said, trusting in God. And so this is the story of Abraham. God's promises. Abraham sins. Oh, good things happen. More promises and other sins. What does that kind of look like? It looks like a mess. It looks like a roller coaster. It looks like our lives, doesn't it? It looks like our lives. Okay, this is what makes studying Abraham's story so practical for us. It looks kind of like our lives. That was just yesterday. I was mowing my lawn. I really like mowing lawn, and. Uh, because when I mow lawn, you just kind of think about random things, right? You don't really control what you think about. It. I just started thinking about some decisions in my life that didn't work out the way I wanted it to. I'm not sure why this was on my mind as I'm mowing my lawn, but just thinking about, huh, like, you know, I wish I would have done this instead. And then the thought of me as I was mowing lawn popped into my mind, but God's going to use it anyways. And who I thought it was Abraham. Now here you have Abraham. He really, from our point of view, he does all sorts of things to mess up God's plan. But could Abraham really mess up God's plan? No. No, he couldn't. Because God knew. Because God knew. 
that God, God was going to work it out. Right? Abraham could be a fool and call his wife his sister. And God was still going to make sure it worked out according to his plan. Abraham could be a fool and sleep with his maidservant and have a son through her, but God was still going to make sure his plan worked out. And as I was mowing along, yes, that was just a happy thought. Was, sure, maybe I've made some decisions in my life that going back I wish I could have changed. That I wish it would have been different. But it doesn't really matter. Because God's going to work out. Right? I can't really mess up God's plan. I'm not that powerful. God's going to do what he wants to do with my life. And that's a good thing. A couple more review questions. What lessons about marriage did we learn from the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar? This was our story last week. And we made some applications about marriage. What kind of things did we learn last week from this story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar? So trust in God and don't take matters into your own hands. And that can apply to individuals, but that can also apply to a couple. You know, if you have a couple where you're both Christians, right, we're, we're going to trust in God together. And we said it's easy for that not to happen. Right? Even in a Christian marriage, we can encourage each other in our doubts and in our fears and in our worries. And instead of giving up on God's promises, Christian marriage, let's, let's encourage each other to put our trust in God. Good. Nan? God's plan for marriage was one man, one woman. And he knew that that was the best plan. Good. So God's plan for marriage is one man and one woman. And he knew that that was a good plan. We said last time, some people expect the Bible to say more against polygamy, which is a man having more than one wife. And the Bible does say that that's wrong. It's true, maybe the Bible, you'd expect it to say that more often. But what the Bible does is it shows every time a man takes more than one wife, it's always bad. <laughs> That's how the Bible shows that. Okay, and so you think, well, this, hey, Sarah's even along with him. Let's take Hagar, and this is going to work out. And no, it doesn't. It doesn't ever work out. Lydia? Well, what is a little confusing to me is um, the Old Testament, many of the let's say, godly kings had multiple wives. And so that was okay back then, but now it's not. Good question. So this is kind of what we're, what we're talking about. In the Old Testament, you have people who are godly figures, godly men, who have multiple wives. And so you just said, well, maybe that was okay back then. Well, it wasn't okay back then. Because the Bible says it's supposed to be one man and one woman and don't commit adultery and the Bible is very clear about that. And this is where people would expect, well, why did God just immediately condemn those, those people? And maybe two answers would be, one, thankfully God doesn't do that. What if God were to immediately condemn us the moment that we fell into a sin? He doesn't. Okay, he's patient with us and gracious to us. But at the same time, whenever in the Bible you see someone with multiple wives, it always results in problems in their families. Always. And that's the Bible's way of saying, right, this wasn't right. right. So King David took lots of, he's a great example, someone who seemed to be very faithful to God, and yet he has lots of wives. And King David's family was a mess. One of his sons raped one of his daughters, 
And then another son killed his brother who had raped his sister. And then that son rebelled against David and drove him out of his palace. He had to flee for his life. And then after he died, another son pretended like he should be the next king instead of the one that David wanted to be king. And so there was another rebellion and then he had to get put to... And like, what's God teaching us? Right, this didn't... I think at the end of David's life, he would have said, no, my life would have been a lot easier if I wouldn't have had all those wives. And then David's son is Solomon, and Solomon is the one with hundreds of wives, and the Bible says his wives led him away from God. And because of that, the kingdom of Israel was split into two countries. The reason that God's people were split is because Solomon had so many wives who led him away from God. So... The point is that sometimes people, well, the Bible should just say over and over again, don't have more than one wife. Don't, and the Bible says that. But even when it doesn't say that, it shows it. All right? So just this, this example, it seems like a pretty simple thing. Sarah's on board. Just take my servant as a wife. She won't be as important as me. She'll just be another wife. and sleep with her until the son. And the moment Hagar gets pregnant, Hagar kind of despises Sarah. Sarah mistreats Hagar, and this is a, a lasting source of conflict for Abraham. Right? So one man and one woman. This is this is a good plan that God's put together. I have a pastor. This guy's the guy says, isn't one wife enough? Yeah, so it's, isn't one wife enough? Yeah. Hopefully he said that in a positive way. Yeah. And so this is God's plan, that one man and one woman. This is this is what God wants. All right, last one. Explain why this is such a comforting statement. God always keeps his promises regardless of our faithfulness. We're so often unfaithful. Right? And if our lives depended on us, always doing the right thing or the faithful thing or the godly thing, Life would not be a good place. But this is God's promise. I'm going to keep my promises. Whether you do or not, I'm going to be faithful. And this is why we put our trust in Him. Alright, let's go on to something new today. So open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 17. we're going to see God come a third time to Abraham. This is going to kind of sound familiar. God's going to come to Abraham again and offer him his promises to build up his faith. But the bulk of the chapter actually talks about circumcision, which maybe seems kind of like a strange thing to have to spend time talking about. Although circumcision does play an important role in the Bible, and it is something that even Christians today question and wonder about. And so we're going to hear about God's covenant of circumcision with Abraham, what that meant for him, and then what that means for God's people today. So I'm going to start. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. 
walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between you and me and will greatly increase your numbers. Right? Sounding familiar? Okay, God's coming to Abraham to make him promises. A couple things just from the context. How many years had passed since the previous story? 13. 13. If you look at the end of chapter 16, it says that Hagar bore Abram a son, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And now the next verse, now he's 99 years old. So 13 years have passed. So Abram's got this son who's 13 years old, Ishmael. Sarah still doesn't have any children. God comes to Abram again. What name for God is used here? This is where maybe your Bible has a footnote that'll tell El you the Hebrew word. El Shaddai. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah. There's a lot of different Hebrew words to talk about God. There's a song, El Shaddai. Have you heard that? I would sing it, but I don't think it would sound very good. Neil Diamond sings it? Neil Diamond sings it? All right, then it must be good. And so El Shaddai is one of the, the Old Testament phrases for God. Um, I asked, what is it? Whoops, why is this an appropriate name for God? It, it seems to me, El, El is the word for God. So El means God. And Shaddai, it's not, it's not a super common word. It seems to mean like God of the mountain or God of the mountains. And this is where when our Bible translators try to translate these different names for God, it can be a complicated thing. How do we, what should we say? And so our NIV Bible says God Almighty with this, this concept of if I'm the God of the mountains, this is focusing on power and strength. And so it seems this is a name God uses for himself when he wants us to think about his power and his strength. So El Shaddai, God of power, mountains, comes to Abraham. Why is that an appropriate name for God? He's all powerful. He's all powerful. Yeah. He's all powerful, but that's why you see him on the mountain also. Yeah. So you think about this. Yeah. The Bible even talks about to lift up your eyes to the the mountains. Because when you look up, that's where you think about God and see where God comes from. And especially, obviously, God's going to make some miraculous promises to Abraham. How does a guy who's 99 years old have a son? Only by the power of God. Right? So, I'm, I'm El Shaddai. So, if you ever hear that, that phrase, that's what it's referring to. Let's keep going. So, God comes to Abraham. Here's what he says. Verses 3 to 8. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very faithful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So 
begin to love him as you become it. All this sounds familiar. And God's been making the same promises to Abraham again and again. Something new here, though, is we hear about Abraham's name changing. And I said right from the first week, we're going to just say Abraham so we don't confuse our sons. But up to this point, all we've heard is Abram in the Bible. Right? This is another place where your Bible probably has footnotes for you. When there's an important name, your translators will tell you what the names mean. So Abram means exalted father. And Abraham means father of many. And so there's just a little change. Right? The, the, the word father has always been a part of his name. But instead of exalted father, it's now your father of many. And why does God change his name to father of many? Because his descendants are going to be the father of many nations. Right? It's God's promise. Okay, so here you get the name change for Abraham. What does it mean when Abraham is said to be the father of many nations? There's really two ways that you can look at this. One way is better than the other, but they're both true. In what way would Abraham become the father of many nations? Ishmael would be the, a different nation, and Isaac would be his one. Excellent. So Ishmael and Isaac, his two sons, are both going to become important people with many descendants. And actually beyond that, Abraham ends up having a lot more children after Isaac. Sarah dies and he has a, a, a wife, Keturah, and has more children. So Abraham really became the father of many nations. Many different people groups came from Abraham. So that's absolutely true. Um, today, you know, people, how far back can you trace your genealogy? But a lot of people in the Arab world today would still say we are physical descendants of Abraham. And anybody with Jewish ancestry, of course, can say, I'm a physical descent of Abraham. And so, just physically, this man who had no children would become the father of many, many nations of people. That's one way that's absolutely true. There's a better way to look at this, though. We've talked about it a little bit along the way. How else did Abraham become the father of many nations? Through the church. So the Bible tells us that anyone who believes in God's promises, like Abraham did, is a child of Abraham. So anyone who believes in Jesus as their Savior is a child of Abraham. How many nations in the world have Christians in them? And I wasn't looking for a specific number. Most of them, a lot of them, hundreds of them, right? Father of many nations. There, there really are people in just about every nation on earth who can look at Abraham and say, he's, he's my spiritual father through faith in Jesus. And so, there's two ways God keeps his promise. This man who had no offspring, you're going to be the father of many nations. And he is. Any questions about that? <coughs> Together with changing this name and father of many nations, it seems like God's emphasizing two promises that go together. And especially if you look at verse 8, there's two things that God promises that seem to really be tied together. 
One thing he's going to give and one thing he's going to be. He's Can you see what I'm thinking of? He's given Canaan. Good. So God's going to give Abraham the land, the land of Canaan. This land is going to be the land of your descendants. And what goes together with it? It's not like, all right, you get the land. That's it. What else do they get? They get God as their God. Okay, and so these things go all together. And God says, I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to be your God. And these promises go together. Okay, now, we don't, we don't have the, the whole story here, right? God's just giving the promises. Sometimes people ask, well, if God gave these promises, how come uh, God's people didn't have the land of Israel for a long time? Suppose you could say they do now. There's a country of Israel, but for 2,000 years there was no country of Israel. Look at the promises. What did God's people ultimately do, the Israelites, with the second promise, God being their God? They rejected it. So ultimately, the people of Israel rejected God as their God. And what goes together with them having God as their God? The land. The promise about the land. Okay, and so if somebody asks, well, God makes his promise. Abraham's descendants are going to have the land and he's going to be their God. Why, why have there been such large periods where no Jewish people have possessed the land of Canaan? And, well, it's because those people, unfortunately, rejected God as their God. And the land went with it. Okay, they got taken into exile into Babylon. God brought them back. Jesus came. They rejected Jesus. And then that's when the Jewish people really lost their land. It went together with having God as their God. So today, do they still reject Jesus? So uh, people who are Jews by their religion still reject Jesus. Yes, there are people of Jewish ancestry who are Christians. And so it kind of confuses us a little bit. There's, there's people who are descendants of Abraham who believe in Jesus as their Savior, mm -hmm. and they're Christians. But as far as people who are Jews by religion, who follow Judaism, the, the whole foundation of Judaism is Jesus is not the Savior. We are waiting for another Savior to come. Not another, the Savior. We're waiting for the Savior to come. And so Judaism today is not the same as Christianity okay. at all. It's They have the Old Testament and a bunch of extra rules they've added to it. Oh, so they are strictly sticking to the Old Testament. The Old Testament plus a lot of rules and traditions that have become a part of Judaism since then. And so this is a, a sad thing of yeah. people who have all these promises but refuse to see that Jesus was the one who fulfilled those promises. Good questions. Thank you. Keep going. Verse 9. Here's where we hear about circumcision. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. 
For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So here we hear about circumcision. God tells Abraham, you and your descendants are to be circumcised. And states to some things for us to talk about. Was this the first time that circumcision was practiced in the ancient world? No. Uh, it's the first time we hear about it in the Bible. But actually, circumcision was a practice that goes way back, way before the time of Abraham. So I, I looked it up a little bit as I was doing this Bible study, and just non-biblical people, so not from the Bible, they, they say that circumcision is the oldest surgical procedure that human beings have done. And that it goes back thousands of years, even before Abraham. And when I was reading, even scientists, they don't, they don't know exactly why. They don't know exactly why this is something that goes back so far. But it does. There's sometimes health benefits to it. There's cultural, religious connections to it. But anyways, even in the days of Abraham, this was not a new thing. Right? God doesn't have to explain to Abraham what circumcision is. He knows what it is. But clearly, it was not something that was done in Abraham's culture. Because here, he's 99 years old, he's not been circumcised. And so even though this was something that was practiced in the ancient world, in many places, it wasn't practiced everywhere, and it was obviously not something that was practiced in Abraham's family. And God is saying, this, this is something I'm asking you to do. What specific instructions does God give? So what, what do we learn about what's supposed to happen just from these verses? Eight days old. So when a baby boy is born, you circumcise him on the eighth day. All right? Uh, just the, the way that our world thinks today. Uh, so in, in our world today, I think what people would say, well, you should let that person grow up and decide for themselves. Right? That's what everybody says about everything. When circumcision something at all, just let them grow up and decide for themselves. No. This was something that God said, believing parents, you're making this decision for your children. That this is what they should have done at eight days old. Okay, what else do we learn about circumcision just from these verses? All his, all his servants and everybody in his whether bought or whatever Excellent. So it wasn't just for Abraham's children or it, or even Jews or his Jewish descendants. It was for anybody connected with your people. Okay, which really makes it kind of a, a, a beautiful promise in that these promises of God, they're not just for Abraham's physical descendants, right? They're for anybody who's connected to Abraham. Right? So this is a special sign between God, not just and your children, Abraham, but anybody who's connected with you. Could be a foreigner, could be someone from another country, but they become connected with you. Then they're part of my promises to you. 
So it was an everlasting covenant. It was this idea, this should continue. Okay, we're going to talk at the end about whether it should continue with us today. But this wasn't just for a little while. Generation to generation, this should continue. You're skipping maybe the, the most obvious detail because you just assume it's taken for granted. Who's supposed to be circumcised? Just the men. Just the men. If you say, well, that should be pretty obvious. They're, they're actually, we don't have to go into all that. There is female circumcision in the world too. And just know, this is nothing that the Bible ever mentions at all. And it just, it seems like cultures that practice that, it usually is always in the context of subjugating women somehow by doing this. If you've ever read about it or heard about it. So just know that this is not, the Bible never ever mentions female circumcision. This is just, just for men. And God gives the purpose here. And hope because that's a good thing. Okay, this is one part of the Bible that if ladies aren't included, that's okay. And through this, it was through the men, people were marked as part of God's people. Lydia? Uh, it seems to me that, um, that, and I don't know, when did it become a just an automatic thing in the current world? Um, at what period did it just, you know, you, you, you have a new baby in your family and it's just a, a boy and it just automatic. And I... In addition to that, <clears throat> I uh, saw a show or read something about uh, during World War II, uh, the way the Nazis would discover that the men were truly Jews is that they would see if they had been circumcised or not. So it seems back then there probably weren't as many non-Jewish people getting circumcised as there are today. So how did that evolve? That's a good question. I don't know all the answers to that. I, I can say that today, it's not as though every baby boy is automatically circumcised. So I've had boys, and it's always been a question. Mm -hmm. And we've even, I mean, the doctors have been very clear, this is completely your decision. And I think the doctors we've had have always kind of made it seem like, you know, either way, it doesn't really doesn't really matter. I think if you look at medical guidance today, medical guidance, I think, still recommends circumcision for health reasons, spreading of disease and things like that. So if it's become a common practice, I think that's, part of it is, you know, you hear about it in, in the Bible, and Islam practices circumcision too, so a lot of people have heard about it through their religious roots. And then I think medical guidance today Recommends it, but I can speak from experience that it's not something that is automatically done when baby boys are born. It's a decision that the parents make for themselves. Good question. So. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, yes, it was kind of not something I was really. Thinking. I remember when our first son was born. I was like, "Well, do you want to circumcise?" It was kind of. I haven't thought this all through, right? And. I actually choose, like I, I have to think about this and so it is it is a decision that parents make today. Good questions. Right, so this is what the Bible lays down. Everybody who's gonna be connected to God's people in the Old Testament, you're to be circumcised. If you come in at a later age, you're welcome. You're welcome to join 
God's people, but you need to be circumcised. The normal way, though, is you're going to be born as a baby, and baby boys are going to be circumcised at eight days old. And this is just a, a sign that you're, you're part of God's people. Follow that? All right, we're going to have more to say. I guess we should answer the next question. Which was, in what ways was a sign of the covenant a good thing for God's people? So why would this be why would this be good? They have a very short memory. And if there's something physical there to remind them, it might help make it so that they don't immediately turn back on all the good things God has done for them. Yes. So we human beings can have short memories. Not you, of course. You probably have really long good good memories, but we can have short memories. And here was just a clear reminder. Uh, God has made me promises. God's made my family promises. We're set apart. We're different. We're chosen from God. And you can think God has a habit of doing this. What other signs has God given? That he wouldn't need to give, but he's given. After the flood, no one and his family get out. God says, I'm not going to send another worldwide destructive flood. And to remind you that, I'm going to put a rainbow in the clouds. God didn't have to do that. But it's this beautiful just reminder of God's promises. God's Sometimes he gives clouds. us a double rainbow. Sometimes he gives us a double rainbow. <laughs> and we're extra happy, right? Yes. When we get to see that. And with circumcision, you should also think of what God's given us as Christians. What are the signs or the sacraments that God gives Christians? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. God says, if you've been baptized, this is just a physical way for you to see and know the reality of God's promises to you. And the Lord's Supper, you actually see it and touch it, right? And eat it. This is a physical sign of God's grace to you. And circumcision was like that for Abraham and for his family. All right, let's keep reading. Next we hear about Sarah. So chapter 17. My microphone working? No. no. There we go. Chapter 17, verses 15 and 16. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. This is where we finally hear something that we've been waiting to hear, but God hasn't ever said. What great news do we hear in the first, for the first time in these verses? Who's going to be the mother of this son that Abraham's going to have? Sarah. Sarah is going to be the mother of this child. Okay, we said last week that when they come up with this bad plan to sleep with Hagar, God hadn't specifically said, your son is going to come from Sarah. And so maybe part of their thinking was, well, it's just Abraham's going to have a son, and maybe God's looking for us to come up with another plan to have that happen. 
But here God says, no, 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 no. Right? This son, this special son, it's going to come from your wife. It's going to come from Sarah. And as proof of that, God changes her name too. And so again, all along we've been saying Sarah, but the Bible has been saying Sarai. And here Sarai's name gets changed to Sarah. Did you notice that in your Bible? Maybe, maybe your Bible is different than mine. Does it have a footnote for what those two names mean? So some don't. Mine doesn't even bother to put it in. Uh, because what's kind of odd is we're not sure what the name change means. It seems like both names mean princess. And so with Abraham, the name change clearly added a little bit of significance to his name. Right? With the word Sarai and Sarah, we don't know enough about ancient Hebrew to recognize any difference between the two names. And so, different than with Abraham, it doesn't seem as though God is adding something to her name. But, God certainly is playing off what it means. So, Sarah means princess. What does God say Sarah is going to become? Mother of nations. And does it even kings? Kings are going to come from you. And so, Sarah and Sarah both mean princess. And God says, just as proof of this promise, I'm going to change the last letter of your name. And not only are you a princess, but you're going to have kings that are going to come from your family. Right? So this must have been a beautiful promise for Sarah. Right? It really is. It's for me too. Not just for Abraham, for me. Does Paul have This is where we can try to search it. Again, it's people like can't. So, right. Sometimes, sometimes the word that the letter H at the end it can like have a direction to it, to or from. But again, people who know Hebrew a lot better than I, when I would look this up, I said, well, we can't really see any difference between these two words. They're different. I mean, clearly they sound differently, but the meaning seems to be the same. Okay, bring Verses 17 to 22. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. So Abraham hears all this news, and what does he do? He laughs. And now, this, this can be a difficult thing in the Bible of trying to discern someone's motivation for laughing. Did you just realize you can laugh for a lot of different reasons? Right? You can laugh because you're happy. You can laugh because you're ridiculing somebody. You can laugh because you don't believe it. 
There's all sorts of different ways to laugh. Okay? I gotta tell you, it seems like here, Abraham's laughter is actually a good thing. In the next chapter, we're going to hear Sarah laugh, and God's going to specifically point out that her laughter was not a good thing. And the fact that God doesn't say anything about that day right here, it makes it, makes it seem like Abraham was laughing, but in a good way. And a verse that backs it up is way in the New Testament. I got it up here on the screen. Romans chapter 4 talks a lot about Abraham. It says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. So as the Bible describes Abraham as a 9900 year old, it says, you know, Abraham knew his body was dead and his wife's body was dead, but he trusted God's promise. Okay, and so when we hear Abraham laugh, again, it's hard for us to see people's motives, but it seems like here, there's, there's just some, some joy in there. And just some amazement. Really, it's from Sarah, right? Remember all this, they just had this whole thing with Hagar. And here God says, you know, Abraham, it's actually Sarah who's going to give you a son. And I can just kind of picture him. Oh, really? Yes. Yes. And I went through all that, right? We just did all this with Hagar and Ishmael, and it's going to be through her. This is great. That's what I was hoping for all along. Right? A happy laugh. Hearing God's promises. But he is still concerned about something. What concern did Abraham still have? Ishmael. Ishmael. So you have this, that Ishmael is his son. And he should care about him. Right? Even though he wasn't conceived in the way God would have wanted him to be. And so God, Abraham says, what about Ishmael? And what does God promise? He's going to be a, a great ruler too. Nations are going to come from him. We hear Ishmael had 12 sons. Just like Abraham's grandson, Jacob, would have 12 sons. Ishmael did too. So because Ishmael was connected to God's family, Ishmael would be blessed too. But this covenant... This promise of a savior and land and being their God, whom would that be connected to? Finally, God tells Abraham when it's going to happen. He's been waiting all this time. When does God say it's going to happen? Just one more year. By this time next year. Man, I bet that made Abraham laugh too. As he's been waiting so long and Finally, finally he hears, by this time next year, you're going to have another son, Isaac, his laughter. Any questions you have about all that? <coughs> Let's finish the chapter. So verses 23 to 27. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, 
and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. So here's something that we see very typical of Abraham. Abraham circumcised all the males in his family on that very day. Okay, and so Abraham is a man, he would have doubts, he'd have weakness, he would do wrong things. But Abraham is also an example of faith. God says do this, and when God told Abraham to do things, he would do them immediately, that very day. Okay, just one side note, somebody asked me about this. So Ishmael was 13 when he was circumcised. As I understand it, uh, Muslims who practice circumcision they, they circumcise when someone is 13. Uh, because Ishmael is one of the people they trace their ancestry back to. And so in Islam, circumcision isn't a, when you're eight days old. It's kind of like a entering puberty, becoming a man type of a, a ceremony. So Muslim men are circumcised too, but a different time. Partly though based, based on this story. Okay, before we move to the New Testament... I want you to notice the increasing level of assurance that God gave to Abraham. And so this is what God does. He doesn't just promise us something one time. Because like we talked about, we doubt and we forget. And so God just has this habit of coming to us again and again. More and more and more. So we've seen three times now that we've had almost a whole chapter of God coming to Abraham. Okay, Let's just, in, in just a general way, Notice how God says more each time. So in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham out of the blue, and what happens? Go to a different world. Go to a different country. Yeah. I'm going to bless you. You'll be my people. Yeah. Okay, that's Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 15, God says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be my people. And what extra thing did God do? He talked about the air. He said, this air is going to come from your own body. So more, more specificity, being more specific. And there was a big new thing we were introduced to in chapter 15. A word that starts with C. Covenant. God made this covenant. Do you remember how he made the covenant? Not circumcision yet. They took animals and cut them in half. Which is weird. If you weren't here that day, it sounds weird. They took animals, cut them in half, and God walked through them. As in, I am making this, this deal with you. Right? It's a one-sided covenant. So chapter 15, we hear all the promises of chapter 12, but added to it is this, the sun's going to come from your own body, and I'm making this covenant with you, and it's a real deal, and I'm going to promise it. Life or death. I'm going to walk through these animals, and you're going to know it's going to happen. Right? God adds something. Now we get to chapter 17. God comes. He makes the same promises, right? I'm giving you a son. I'm giving you land. I'm going to be your God. And now what does he add to him? Well, there's going to be the sign of circumcision. But even more. Who's the son going to come from? It's going to come from Sarah. When's it going to happen? Next year. And you just see this with God coming to Abraham to build up his faith. And 
This is what God's word does for us, right? The more we hear God's word and study God's word over and over again, God's coming to us and he's building up our faith with more and more assurances. And that's how it worked for Abraham. God kept coming back. There's more. There's more. It's even better. Get it? What is interesting to me is that Abraham did all that circumcision. The Lord must have given him the knowledge to be able to do that. Yeah, so how did he know how to do it? And again, this is where it seems like this was a practice. People knew about this practice. Yeah, but you just say, I don't, I don't really want to picture that day. No. Of all these people, we heard previously that there was a lot of men in Abraham's household. And, well, here we go. Right? And standing, yeah, how did this all go? And it is quite a thing. And, but Abraham did it, and the men in his household went along with it. Right? They, they trusted they trusted God, or at least they trusted their, their leader, Abraham. And so this was quite a, quite a way for them to show God, we believe your promise. We believe your promise. What's left is, we got to answer, what does this have to do with us today? So if you go to the last page, we've got a few minutes left. I think, yeah, we do. So, obviously, here in Genesis, these are pretty pretty strong words from God, right? If you want to be a part of, of, of my, my, my family, you need to do this. It should be... Every generation after you for a long, long, long time is going to be doing this. So what about what about for us today, circumcision? To start with, circumcision on the eighth day was practiced for 2,000 years. Right? Here's some Bible passages. Luke 1, 59-60, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, No, he's to be called John. Who's that talking about? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was circumcised on the eighth day. And there was no question about it. Okay, you can see that at that time, what was attached to your circumcision day? That's when you got your name. Okay, and so on the eighth day, John the Baptist was circumcised. How many years did John the Baptist live after Abraham? You guys know this. 2,000 years. Right? Abraham lives 2,000 B.C. Right? right after this, Luke chapter 2, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Who else was circumcised? Jesus. Jesus. Of course he was. Right? He was a Jewish boy. He followed all of God's commands perfectly. And so Mary and Joseph, as faithful believers in God, they had their son circumcised on the eighth day, just like he was supposed to be. That's why he became a rabbit. He couldn't he started preaching that gospel until he's 30 years old. That's when how old you got to be to be a rabbi. Good. So Jesus didn't really start publicly preaching until he was 30 years old, which was also part of what their culture said, that you needed to be 30 years old to be a, a rabbi or a teacher. Open your Bible. This is the last place you have to actually open to. To Acts chapter 15. After Jesus dies and rises and returns to heaven, there's a huge debate about circumcision. 
And they had to have a big meeting of all of the important leaders of Christianity, especially Peter and Paul and James. They have to get together and meet about this. Do these commands to be circumcised, is this something for Christians too? Or was this just something for the Jewish people? Okay, so I'm going to read this quick. We don't have a lot of time. If you're in Acts chapter 15, it has some kind of title, the Council at Jerusalem, the Jewish Jerusalem Council. Okay, looks like people are there. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Right? So the context is Paul. Paul and Barnabas, they've been doing their missionary journeys. And some people come from Judea. Which big city is in Judea? It starts with a J. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So there's Jews from Jerusalem who come to Antioch, which is in Syria, and they say, all right, it's great that new people are becoming Christians, but you have to be circumcised. You cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas say, no, that's not right. And so there's a debate. And so they say, we better have a big, we better talk about this. Let's get everybody in Jerusalem and have a big conference. Here's what happens. So verse 3. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything, they reported everything God had done through them. And some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And this is really interesting. So we hear about Pharisees, but these Pharisees, what are they? They're Christians. These are Pharisees who've become Christians, and yet, what are they still holding on to? All right, they're, they're, still, they're still not clear. What does faith in Jesus really mean? Right? So they would say Jesus is the Savior, but you have to be circumcised too. You're saved by faith in Jesus and by being circumcised. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between them and us, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Just realize, this must have been really powerful words, right? Peter stands up as Jesus' disciple and a leader in the church and says, you know, we don't keep the laws. We Jews, we don't keep all of the laws God gave us. Thank God we're not saved by keeping the laws. What are we saved by? 
by grace, by faith. Okay, it keeps going. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So Paul gets up, and now remember, Paul wasn't, he wasn't respected like Peter was. Right? Paul was still this newcomer. People didn't know if they could trust him. But he tells about how God's bringing people to faith. Verse 13, when they finished, James spoke up. Right? Who was James? This is Jesus' brother. Jesus' brother, who was actually the head of the church in Jerusalem. James says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and build David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So Jesus' brother James gets up and he says, you know, even the Old Testament talked about Gentiles joining God's people. This has always been God's promise. He quotes the book of Amos, that God's going to build up his house with people from all over the world. And he says these words, which are really, really key words. Let's not make it hard for the Gentiles who are coming to Christ. Just a second. <laughs> He says, let's not make it hard for the Gentiles who are coming to Christ. And so we're not going to expect the Gentiles to fulfill all of the Jewish laws. They pick out just a few that to them were especially important. Abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's command. That's a no-brainer. They add a few about not eating food sacrificed to idols or blood. And the best explanation that I hear about that is if you want Jews and Gentiles to get along with each other, at some point they need to eat together, right? It's hard to have a Christian community where you don't eat together. And if Jews and Gentile Christians in the first century are going to eat together, they need to kind of have some agreement on what we're going to eat. Does that make sense? And so in that first century, God did add some, let's, if you're going to eat together with Jews, don't eat like blood sausage, which is forbidden for Jews to eat. Right? And don't eat food that was sacrificed to some pagan idol. Right? Let's let's try to keep peace by by having some guidelines for what we eat. Okay, but do they say you have to be circumcised? No. Not at all. Okay, now I know we're out of time. Here's two last clear passages that talk about this. So after that council in Jerusalem. Uh, more of the New Testament's written. Here's what Colossians 2 says. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority in him. You also were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. 
Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through, through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So Paul says, if you're a Christian, you've absolutely been circumcised. But not on a part of your body. What's been circumcised? Like your soul, like your old flesh have been cut off. But when does that happen? In your baptism. And so in the New Testament, the Bible does not say that men need to be circumcised. It says everybody needs to be circumcised, but not in your flesh. You need to be circumcised in your heart, in your spirit, through baptism. Okay, we could talk a long time about connections between baptism and, and circumcision, uh, but both are the way for someone to become part of God's family. Circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament. I think we could say there's a lot of benefits to baptism over circumcision. Wouldn't you think, without thinking about it too hard? One, that it's for men and women equally. Two, it doesn't involve cutting off part of your body. The Bible says baptism has replaced circumcision as the way for you to be a part of God's people. Okay, to the point that Galatians 5 says this, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to you, to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. And so Paul says, in fact, if you're a Christian, right, if you, if you think that you have to be circumcised, what else should you do then? The whole law, you better not eat pork or bacon. You better not work on Saturdays. You better give exactly 10% of your offerings. If you're going to force people to be circumcised, then people need to obey the whole law. But you don't. Because who set us free? Jesus has. And so in Christ, circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter spiritually. What matters is faith in Christ. It shows itself through love. So for Christians today, there is no command about circumcision. Instead, we have baptism, which is even better. And so when it comes to circumcision today, it really, like we talked about before, it's a, it's a decision that that family makes. Nothing wrong with having a boy be circumcised. There might be some benefits to it. There's nothing spiritual about it, though. Nothing wrong with not having a boy circumcised. It's not a spiritual thing anymore. Talked about a lot today. Any last questions that you have? Yeah? They were talking first about the custom from Moses, and then they call it the law of Moses. And it came from Abraham. So. Good. So, good question. So, at that Jerusalem Council, they say it's the law of Moses. It's because in, in the laws of Moses, there also are very strong commands about circumcision. So, so for the, the Jews, you know, when they talked about what is the law saying, they went back to the laws of Moses. But you're right, it's in both places. Abraham and Moses both had those commands. 
And Jesus fulfilled it. And so it's not something we have to follow today. Other questions? Come back next week. Next week, uh, we hear more promises of the Son. And we also start talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. So one big story in Abraham's story is Sodom and Gomorrah. That'll be the next two Sundays talking about that. It's very applicable to our world today. Sin and judgment and repentance. And so, come back next Sunday. Let's go to the prayer. Dear Lord God, you came to Abraham over and over with your promises to assure him and build him up. We're thankful that you do the same thing for us. Every time we hear your word, build up our faith and our knowledge and our confidence in you. Why don't you give Abraham's family the sign of circumcision? That was a good thing for them. You've given us something even better. You've sent Jesus to fulfill all of your commands. And you give us baptism in which men and women are able to be part of your family. We're thankful for these sacraments that you give to us. Help us to believe your promises about them. May you be with us and our families. Lord, we don't just want to be baptized one time. We want that baptism to be something that sticks with us throughout our whole lives. Help us all to keep hearing your word, to keep growing in our faith in you so one day, one day we can be with you forever in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.